0: the second episode of Sass Mouth Dames podcast today i'm talking about a life of her own from 1950 sometimes it pops up on youtube but the dvd is also available from warner archive which is region free and will play on any dvd player or on your laptop it's worth the purchase price of around 20 euro if you live in europe with delivery from amazon Lana Turner plays Lily James, a woman who works odd jobs for six months so she can save for the train fare from a small town in Kansas to become a model in New York City. 29-year-old Lana Turner, who had been cast in Hollywood Pictures since she was 16, still looks like a baby-faced innocent and could easily pass for 21. Don't listen to what the trolls say about her looking too old or too heavy. She looks fresh and natural in the role. Turner, saddled with a sober cat, The Sweater Girl, was a damn good actor when she had a meaty script that allowed her to do more than look glamorous. Give me Lana Turner reading a man, The Riot Act, and I'm in heaven. Lana Turner gives her best performance in A Life of Her Own, director George Cukor's underrated masterpiece. In many ways, this picture from, picture from 1950 borrows staples from the Depression-era woman's pictures, except the studio couldn't get the original script by Isabel Leonard past the censors in the Hayes office. Joseph Breen objected to the addition of a plot point about models who turned to sex work and said the ending was too depressing, so changes were made. Lana Turner didn't want to do the picture, which I'll tell you more about later with an excerpt from her memoir. Cukor thought it was a disaster. He said the studio chopped the film to ribbons when it cut 42 minutes out of the runtime. time. Cukor told an interviewer, All I can remember about this one is I hated it. It should be locked up in the archives. None of us are, are proud of it. I beg to differ, Mr. Cucor. Your picture tops my list of outstanding women's pictures. A life of her own wastes no time reminding viewers how tough women have it. For instance, we can't just walk into a room and sit down creepy Tom Ewell, sorry, but I run to the shower to apply salt scrub whenever I recall his oily horn dog play for Marilyn Monroe in The Seven-Year Itch. He lectures a wannabe, wannabe model in his office about a woman's appearance in any room as something that requires effort, which she must practice every minute she can, when she's alone in her apartment, in her bedroom, on the street, or in the bathroom. Women should never make up and should instead make down. We should walk on the balls of our feet like wild cats rather than our heels like bears. Two imaginary rails should corral each hip to modulate a smooth gait. We should sit in a graceful S position, which cranks our spine into a chiropractor's nightmare because the silhouette pleases the eye. He says, most women drop into a chair like a bag of meal and haul themselves out of it like a bag of coal. We should stretch ourselves so that our neck pulls out of our shoulders, shoulders out of the waist, and the waist out of the hip. Lana Turner sits in a chair trying to commit his mixed metaphors to, to memory. Cats, bears, meal, coal, rails, got it? Meanwhile, he would resemble a domino tile if not for the expanse of his well-fed middle. Ewell's character, Tom Carraway, sports bad posture, a double chin, Traits he excoriates in the job hopeful women, not to mention his grease pocked complexion and sloppy demeanor. Somehow, men who enjoy prosperous careers as curators of beautiful women always fall short of the aesthetic standards they demand of women. Femininity, by contrast to anything lackluster or machismo, rates a full-time occupation. Lana performs his inane specifications to the desired effect and lands a job. Caraway assesses Lana's tall boy drum majorette inspired hat and smart waistcoat and quips that she doesn't look like she's from Kansas. Lana's character, Lily James, responds with a steady understatement by pointing out that they have magazines and movies in Kansas. She adds, for his education, we don't all wear sunbonnets. Unlike many other films that paint small town women as awkward fashion hayseeds, like Susan Hayward in My Foolish Heart. Screenwriter Isabel Leonard, whose credits include Anchors Away, East Side, West Side, Love Me or Leave Me, and Funny Girl, realizes that ambitious women in rural outposts practice for the thrill of Gotham with enough heated dedication to fry an egg. And director George Cukor knew that women had studied glossy magazines and film stars for style tips since his 1932 masterpiece, What Price Hollywood? Lily James didn't work her tail off waiting tables and sweeping up hair in a salon to be turned away for looking cornpone. She's carefully dressed in a stylish ensemble as evidence of the old dictum to dress for the job you want. She had plenty of time to do her homework. As soon as Anne Dvorak enters the room, we know she's the cautionary tale meant to chasten in the newly hired Lily James. But since she's a live wire, exposed, vulnerable, yet still potent as former top model Mary Ashton, viewers forgive her stock quality in the plot. Dvorak swans in the way all glamorous women did in the 1920s and 1930s. As Louise Brooks recalls in Lulu and Hollywood, Something she learned from Constance Bennett, that entering a nightclub, you should throw your head back as though you detected an abominable odor. Looking to get back to work, Dvorak assures him that she'll be good this time. When she admits, when you've had one mink coat, you've had them all, before she leaves his office, viewers get a hint about what was cut out of Leonard's script about modeling as a gateway to sex work. Dvorak plays a benevolent queen, though, quick to share her experiences with the new model in town. Her first bit of advice when they meet in the lift and head to a bar for a drink warns Lily not to overlook women in the offices, to be nice to them and not just flirt with the men. Women who sit quietly in meetings really make an office run and influence who they pick out of a pile of headshots. When she asks about Lily's background, they share a familiar story about migration from a small town where Mary observes, people know too much about you. Lily summarizes her struggle and poverty thusly, every time they look at you, they're adding up how many times your family was on relief. Their conversation represents a staple in women's pictures from the Depression era and their shared desire to transcend the limitations of a ramshackle background and make themselves over in the big city with a job in front of the camera or on the stage. In the right clothes and right city, a woman's past becomes irrelevant. Mary extends an invitation for that evening so Lily won't have to sit in a room and be maudlin over that small town. She reassures her that soon the town will just be a a funny little story she tells about herself. Lily worries about an early alarm in the morning and the agent's warning about late nights, but then Mary tells her not to fret, you'll look good for a long time yet. Anne Dvorak is only in the picture for 10 minutes, but she gives a searing, unforgettable performance, burnished in film history for scenery-chewing. Dvorak also played an alcoholic in John M. Stahl's film The Walls of Jericho from 1948. But there, married to Poe-faced Cornell Wilde in the film, you can understand why. In A Life of Her Own, the role is flashier because she's so angry and frustrated at a youth-obsessed industry that has decided she's passed by her sell-by date. Mary uses alcohol as a buttress, as viewers watch her fortify herself before a date. The booze lends support that drowns out the panic and calms angry outbursts. Bottles drench fires that would otherwise immolate everyone in her path. She rages against her lover, Lee Gorance, played by Barry Sullivan, for paying too much attention to Lily, for not returning her calls, and probably for a host of other things that he specifically and men in general have done to disappoint Mary. Didn't she master all the tricks of feminine arts? Must she now resign herself to the rubbish heap because she's out on the precipice of 40? Angry women like Mary plug the scream hiding deep in their throat with brandy, wine, or gin until they don't feel like smashing everything in sight. Hooch has unfortunately also made her paranoid when at the end of the night she asked Lily what Caraway said about her and accuses Lily of going after that reptilian Lee Garants while the anger bubbles to the surface, again in her flat. "'I've been there! I know you!' she screams at Lily, who barely conceals terror at the demons of recrimination, stewed in fear and insecurity, wafting out of Mary. Dvorak's costume perfectly underscores her unraveling. A hat with feathers cast down along the side of her face lends a droopy quality to her appearance. She wears a frock with an asymmetrical shoulder— Dvorak looks half-dressed, off-kilter, and wobbly during her outburst, and viewers know that she'll never make a comeback or follow through on plans for a new apartment, new clothes, or a new man. Lily tries to placate her by asking how she takes her coffee. Mary responds, black, in little sips, with brandy. Her anger boils over into short, terse sentences dripping with sarcasm. She's reeling, undone, but she's not totally consumed by fury that she misses the chance to extend a small kindness to Lily. Ultimately, Mary recognizes the one-sided battle she wages and gives Lily a token, something she had won in a raffle that reminds her she was once lucky. Lily accepts a small porcelain shoe decorated with fake jewels on top with an old-fashioned 1930s block heel. It's saccharine and tacky, like our taste when we're young and easily swayed by gaudy things, as Joyce rendered so beautifully with the boy in his story Araby. Viewers know, if Lily doesn't, that we won't be seeing Mary anymore. Rather than reflect on what she could learn from meeting Mary, Lily grasps the first rung of a ladder to success, posing for a series of magazine covers and cultivating a taste for the finer things. The flush of youth provides its own buffer for how fate abandons other women over time. In one scene, Lana's posing in an outrageously glamorous outfit with a celestial headdress and eye mask that looks like it was hijacked from her hit Zigfield Girl. She seems like she stepped off Mount Olympus, a true goddess. She also happens to be eating a chicken sandwich, because modeling is hard work and even a goddess gets hungry. Cucor injects the chicken sandwich to salt the glamour with a bit of realism. Lana really eats in the film too. She doesn’t just resort to pretend mouthfuls like many other women on screen did to manage the delicate business of eating and delivering lines. Look at the roadside lunch counter scene when Alpha Sunday drive with Milande, who had promised baby lobster, he in fact takes her to a greasy spoon, which she seems to know already. Lana salts her patty and then relishes, she says, one of the best baby hamburgers. She's tucked into that burger with pure appetite. She talks with her mouth full and yet still somehow looks impossibly chic. Where a life of her own falters begins with the question, what happens after you get what you want? For Lana Turner, unlike most heroines and woman's pictures from the 1930s, wealth and renown insufficiently fill her ambition her inner yearning for completeness. Lana wants an unavailable Ray Maland. His wife became disabled thanks to him, so he can't leave her without being a monster. Still, every quareen, Gold Digger, Sassmouth Dame, and rising starlet from the Depression era hiss at this point. When you have the brass ring, sister, you don't trade it in for a man. Aside from my objection to a woman who would trade a great career for a man, The bittersweet love story between Milan and Turner feels believable. Milan can take something like watching a woman he doesn't know sleep and make it seem sweet instead of stalkerish. Instead of watching her pine for Milan, viewers need Lana delivering speeches with more fire than an acetylene torch like the one she delivers to rebuff Barry Sullivan's Lee Gorence. He makes a pass at Lily before Mary's been gone for five minutes. Hackles raised, she tells him... Listen, you small-time chiseler, I don't want any small favors or any big favors from you, or anything else you use to buy women. I'm not in the business you think I am, and I'm never going to be. But if I were, I'd be out of your price range. If I were, it would take me ten years to get around to you, so keep away from me. Why, little Miss Kansas, you've been around. There are rats like you everywhere. Lana laces enough acid in each word that you can see Sullivan blanch and shrivel during her speech. He sat in the ladies' hotel mezzanine on a low-set chair. She towers over him in a dominant position as she melts his eyelashes with her scorched-earth speech. How many times must she have said the same thing to the unwanted boner parade of studio wolves, or at least wanted to? Here, Lana gets to deliver the speech— scrapes him off her shoes, and walks away. During the inevitable confrontation scene with the wife, it doesn't go the way Lily James or the audience expects. Lana just can't toss off a speech telling the woman that she's taking her husband. Nora, the wife, played by Margaret Phillips, isn't spoiled, mad, cruel, or bitchy. When Lily first meets her, she's splayed on the floor, fallen from her crutches. She has to revise her approach. Lily learns something about empathy, and for the first time in her romance, she has some perspective. She's had a few bad nights, she admits, but once she meets Nora, she realizes the woman's fighting for her life. Lily's epiphany shifts the entire mood of their meeting. She understands it, finally, in terms of the chicken little fable. A leaf fell on her head, and she went around saying the sky is falling. In the grand scheme of things, a man is just a leaf not the sky. This scene remains a real standout when compared to the way the wife is often depicted, even in women's pictures. Barbara O'Neill appears as a tragic lost cause in When Tomorrow Comes from 1939, but her mental illness presents itself as an albatross for Charles Boyer and keeps him from running off with Irene Dunn. In All This in Heaven Too from 1940, Betty Davis pines for, again, the debonair Boyer, who is saddled again with Barbara O'Neill. O'Neill chews up the scenery and gives a fiery performance the second time, but doesn't merit audience sympathy. We could say the same about Joan Bennett in There's Always Tomorrow from 1955, although I'm sure her character would be able to complain about workaholic husband Fred McMurray. Douglas Sirk maintains the crazy wife gambit in his remake of When Tomorrow Comes in the 1957 production interlude. Marianne Koch plays the wife who prevents Rosano Brasi from finding happiness with June Allison. Cucor's picture, though, reminds women in the audience that they could be on either side of a love triangle. Mistress or wife, both women are human beings with their own dreams and desires. Viewers can't simply dismiss either point of view. Other highlights in Cucor's picture is The Wardrobe by Helen Rose and Rudy Gernreich which presents a representative time capsule of post-war fashion, both from the clothes that Lana Turner and the other models wear for fashion shoots, but also in the ensemble she wears off the clock in her own life. There are fabulous interpretations of Dior's new look, with nipped bodices and full circle skirts, column gowns, smart skirt suits, and incredible details like cuffed pockets on swing coats and hats to beat the band. In one scene, Lily James poses for the cover of Life magazine, wearing a blouse that is bananas and completely covetable. Printed over her breast is canasta, and then along her waist, squeeze, set off by fanned-out playing cards. The blouse epitomizes the mid-century middle-class hostess. Every swoon-worthy ensemble in the picture suits Lana's character, from turban to toe. Most people know Lana from Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life or Tay Garnett's The Postman Always Rings Twice. Seek out this Cukor picture. Also look for these Glamour Girls, Ziegfeld Girl, Johnny Eager, and The Bad and the Beautiful. I'm going to close this episode with an excerpt from Lana's memoir about her experience with the MGM production. My suspension finally ended when I agreed to return to work in a film called A Life of Her Own, which was to be directed by George Cukor. Having stood up to the studio for so many months, I was starting to get a sense of my power to choose the films I would do. And now the studio allowed me to participate in the casting process. Dory Sherry, who had replaced L.B. Mayer in a shakeup at MGM, threw the names of some possible co-stars at me. I vetoed several suggestions. Dory wanted to settle on Wendell Corey, but I felt he wasn't right either. "'Will you test with him?' Dory asked me. "'He doesn't look the part,' I insisted. "'I'm not testing with anyone.' "'I had watched Corey in a few films, "'and I couldn't envision him as the rich, suave married man "'who falls in love with the model I would play. "'After we fought about it, Dory used his power and hired Corey. "'The starting date had been set, but rewrites kept delaying production. "'There hadn't been time to get the costumes right by the time we began shooting.' For the first scene, my costume was a red chiffon dress, but its seams were still unsewn. To speed things up, I offered to wear it anyway. We basted it and pinned it, and then I went out for the master shot. As I left the trailer, I heard Corey say, as though talking to someone nearby, It's interesting you know. The wonderful Barbara Stanwyck never keeps us waiting, not even for one minute. When I whirled around, I saw that he was alone. He was talking to me, or rather, he had timed the remark for my benefit. The name he chose to use made it all the more unpleasant, given Barbara's misunderstanding about my relationship with Robert Taylor. I didn't bother to answer him. Instead, I went straight to the director, who was seated next to the camera. "'Ready to go?' he asked. "'George, I said excuse me, but we're going to have one hell of a long wait.' "'What's the matter, darling? The dress is fine for the master shot.' It wasn't the dress, I told him. There was going to have to be some recasting. When I walked past Corey to my trailer and closed the the door behind me, I knew I was acting like a star for one of the very few times in my career. But I was shaking with anger when I picked up the phone and dialed Benny Tal. Benny, I said, I'm stuck with this lousy picture, but if you want me to do it, you're going to have to recast. What do you mean? I mean Corey, and you better get down here right away. Minutes later, the MGM executives swarmed onto the set. I heard them talking to George as I sat fuming in the trailer. After a while, I began to chuckle over the uproar I had caused. I could be suspended. I might even be sued for the cost of production so far, but I didn't care. It might be absurd, but I'd stick to my guns no matter what. Before long, there was a knock at the door. It was Dory the man who had annoyed me the most. Hello, sweetheart, he said, reaching out to take my hand. Get away from me, I said, rather enjoying nursing my grudge. Tell me what's the problem. I'd like to hear it from you. Dory, you're the problem. I told you from word one that I didn't want Corey. Then behind my back, you went ahead and hired him anyway. Now I want him off the set. "'He's already off the set,' Dory told me soothingly. "'But where does that leave us? "'We haven't anyone else. "'You're leaving us in a very bad position. "'You put yourself there. "'You can give me a call when you want, when you want me to report again. "'Either he goes or I go.' I stayed home for two days, feeling very righteous. Production had been halted. Then Benny Tao called to ask, "'What do you think of Ray Meland?" "'He'd be great,' I said. "'You should have hired him in the first place.' This is going to cost us a bundle, Lana, Benny told me. Understandably, the incident did not improve relations between me and Metro's new head of production. Wendell Corey didn't suffer at all, for he was paid $75,000 for his services without having to work. Ray Milan did very well, too. His agent, knowing the studio was under the gun, charged a fortune for him, $175,000. But if the studio paid through the nose, so did I. They got their revenge through the scripts I was stuck with next. Thanks very much for listening to the second episode. Join me again for episode three, where I'm going to talk about Gene Harlow in Hold Your Man. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific, and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to tell.